believe in him. And so rather than asking the question, why do bad things happen to godly people, it really is more focused on why do good things happen to ungodly people. And I hope you follow what's happening to this man named Asaph who wrote the psalm as he gives his own testimony here. Hear God's word beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together again. Father, now may you give us nourishment from your word. Our souls are hungry, and we pray that you might cause seed to land on good soil that would bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned to you that the writer of this psalm was a man named Asaph. He lived about 3,500 years ago. He was probably a court composer. He was a musician, a composer in the court of King David of Israel. And he wrote this psalm. And if you followed along what's happening, Asaph is looking out at the world. And what he saw bothered him. Because he saw the wicked seemingly to do very well in this life. Much better, it would appear, than the godly. And he said, this is not what we should expect in a moral universe if God is in control. If God is in control, the plans of the wicked should fail. They should not prosper. Only the godly, those who love him, should prosper. But that's not what Asaph observed, and it's not what we'd observe. He saw godless people prospering 
while he did not. He saw unbelievers doing well, being healthy, the problems of life just seeming to bounce off of them, and he's sick. And we read the bitter cry of his soul in verse 13, basically saying, I have surely, I've done this in vain. It's not paid to serve God. And Asaph is losing his faith. He's almost lost it. He says in verse, at the beginning, but as for me, in verse 2, he had almost slipped. He meant he had almost lost his faith. He was falling away. And the reason for this, he tells us in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He not only is taking it from a, uh, a logical point of view that, that it seems as though the wicked flourish and the godly do not, and that, that how does that fit with God's plan, he is saying that he was envious as he saw the lives of the wicked. He's puzzled by the ways of God. He's living a godly life. He tells us he's cleansing his heart. In other words, he's practicing a godly life. He's avoiding sin. He's probably meditating on scripture. He's spending time in prayer. He's confessing and repenting of sin. He's trying to steer clear of the world. But through it all, he's having a great deal of trouble. And it's eroding his faith as he thinks about this. He looked at the ungodly and he sees a stark contrast with the godly. But the problem grows even deeper. His real problem is that he had become envious. He compared their wealth, their health, their prosperity, their influence on others, and he saw it when he compared that with his own. He did not have that, and he's resentful toward God. And he's resentful that God would allow such a state to continue. And so he goes through, we looked at this last week, and I'll not repeat it now, but verses 4 through 14, he, said, he describes unbelievers do prosper. They seem to have no problems. They're not in trouble, he says, as others are. They're free from the burdens of life. That's what Asaph saw when he looked around. Verses 8 and 9, he says, they mock, they blaspheme, they speak even against God, and they seem to be noted, quoted, and promoted by others. He says in verses 10 to 12, they have their followers. And then he concludes in verses 13 and 14. In vain I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. That's a way of saying that I've been devoted to God. And what has it done? There's been no advantage. This is the erosion of faith. Now, that's as far as we got last week. I want to give you some theological terms today. I know you don't read these typically when you open the newspaper, but they're not complicated. The first is the word justification. Justification refers to you and me being made right with God, to being at peace with God. Here's the formal definition. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In justification, it is an act. It's like a judicial act where God declares us forgiven. And it happens once. It's not to be repeated. It may take a long time to bring that about, the process, but once it happens, it is an act, and it happens at a point in time. That's justification. Now, it, after justification begins a process, and this is not a point in time. This is a lengthy thing, and it's called sanctification. Here's the formal definition of sanctification. It is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of, image of God. And we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. In other words, and this is what I show in our inquirers class, if this could be a timeline. 
And at, an, at a certain point, someone says, I trusted Jesus as my Redeemer. I, I tr- had faith and repentance. Justification occurs on that timeline, and I draw a cross right there. But beginning at that point is the process which starts called sanctification. And we draw this line going up that culminates in glorification, which happens either when we die first or Christ comes again, whichever happens first. So justification is an act, sanctification is a process, glorification is a state. To make progress in the process of sanctification, God has given us means. He's given us means like his word and worship and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism and, uh, and, and a number of other things, prayer. And so we, we are to use these means, and I try and stress that, and hopefully you do, not only in my own life, but as I teach others, saying if you're going to grow in Christ and that's God's will for you, you need to use the means, just like you have food. These are spirit, tools of spiritual nourishment. But what we fail to realize often is not only has God provided means for us to partake of that we grow in sanctification, but there are forces very much active against us in that process. And that's where backsliding comes in. And that's what has happened with Asaph. And this is one of the places in the Bible where the term backslide, though it's not used that way, he, he uses it in the sense of I'm sliding backwards. I was falling. My steps had almost slipped. What is a backslider? And I want to explain this simply and clearly best I can because I think it's terribly misunderstood today. A backslider is a person who falls. They are a Christian. They have professed faith in Christ, a genuine conversion, not, not a fake type thing, not just mental assent. But in backsliding, Christians can do all sorts of sinful things. But it says that we may fall, but we do not utterly fall. It is a temporary fall. There are people who appear to be Christians by what they say, and they may even act like it a little bit, but it's only a mental assent to the gospel truth. And when hard times come, they typically renounce that. Now, these are not backsliders. In that case, the prob- person was probably never converted, a never a Christian to start off with. So it's only of the Christian the term backslider can be used. So let's not comfort ourselves in our disobedience with the thought that, hey, I'm happy uh, disobeying God, but I'm a backslider, so I don't have to worry about whether I'll go to hell or not. God is concerned about your present condition. If you were to speak to me and say, well, I'm trying to piece together my background, I'd say, what is your present condition? Let's talk about right now. Are you walking with Christ? Are you repenting of sins? If you feel right at home being far from God, you probably are far from God and probably weren't converted. I mentioned at the first service that, that the Scriptures say if we're in Christ, we're new creatures, old things passed away, behold, new things have come. We've been given a new nature after justification. And that nature does not delight in sin. And there were things I did, and if you're a Christian here today, things you did before I was very comfortable with, ways of life that didn't bother me. And then I trusted Christ, and there's a new awareness and a conscience that's a little more sensitive, sometimes a whole lot more sensitive, toward sin. If, and if I can go back now and live in those things and feel right at home, something's wrong. But it's like a person... Do you remember the first Diet Coke you ever drank? Oh, you know, like, oh, what is that aftertaste? 
And then after a week or so, you drank these things and they started tasting normal. And then you one day picked up a normal Coke, a real, whatever, a normal Coke, Coke classic, and you tasted it. So, oh, that's terrible. Something had changed with your taste buds. I'm not, I don't know what it is. I'm not a nutritionist. But in the backsliding, we may go back and we may do all sorts of horrendous things. But we know you're not happy in it. There's no joy in it. And you know it's wrong. That's what had happened here. What are some of the causes of backsliding? Well, with Asaph in Psalm 73, he's envious of the arrogant. He looked at life. He's perplexed by some unanswered questions. He just... He, it was from his own observation. We don't gather that he's gone off on some moral bad road. He's not committed some immorality or living a, life, a double life, a life of crime. No, these things were eating away. They were eroding his faith as he looked at life and tried to make sense of what was happening. Sometimes backsliding can be intellectual. It can be doubt. Some of you here may, right now, through one reason or another, things you're reading, some influence in your life, you are losing confidence in the things of God. And that is a backsliding going on. And it may, it may not be outward yet, but it's all here. It, it can be worldliness. It can be bitterness. It can be immorality. It can be given in, into temptation. Now, this, I mentioned this book to you last week. This is just reprinted. These are some sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from England back in the 1930s through 60s, and preached all over the world. His books are still read by so many. And this has just been republished. And it's called Faith on Trial, Psalm 73. It's got 11 sermons in here on Psalm 73. Um, and he tells a story of a man I want to read to you. I put it in my notes, but it's quoted right from his book. Here's what he said about worldliness and backsliding. He said, I remember a man whom I and others were quite certain was a Christian. But a time came when we had to watch that man do terrible things. He had been delivered from a life of drunkenness and immorality. But he was converted, and he became a fine Christian. He grew spiritually in an astounding manner. Worse, uh, but the man subsequently did some terrible things. He again became guilty of adultery. Worse than that, he robbed his own wife and altogether behaved in a most despicable manner. Many people began to say that man had never been a Christian, but I said in spite of all, this man is still a Christian. This is backsliding. He is not going to end his life like that. He went from bad to worse. And people said, now will you admit that this man is not a Christian? And I said, this man is a Christian. He is living in hell at the moment, but he will come back. He will come back. Let's look at how Asaph came back. Beginning in verse 17, he has his return to faith. He says in 16, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. What he did, he went into the sanctuary of God. Now he heard God. We don't have the complete explanation, but it seems as though he's referring to the corporate worship of God's people in the tabernacle. You say, what was a tabernacle? The tabernacle was a tent. It was a portable sanctuary, a tent in which God's people, the Jews, when they were in the wilderness, they worshiped there. They continued worshiping in this tabernacle, this tent, until Solomon built the temple. But that would come later. Asaph was alive during the time of David, who was Solomon's father. 
So during Asaph's tenure, the tabernacle was used for corporate worship. So he says it wasn't until he entered the sanctuary or the tabernacle that things changed for him. What would he have seen there? Well, we know from Scripture that he would have witnessed the priest offering sacrifices, animals being put to death as a substitute for the sins of both Asaph and the people. He would have seen the laver of water, this bowl of sorts, where the priest would dip his hands and wash the blood off after he had performed the sacrifices. He would have seen the Holy of Holies, the, the, most, the, the backmost part of the tabernacle, in which was the gold-laden box containing the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and the mercy seat, the lid on that, where the priest would pour the blood after great direction uh, from God, what he would do with that after the sacrifices. He would have seen all that. He would have known that the law, the Ten Commandments, condemns us. And God says, I will by no means clear the guilty except through the shedding of blood. He would have known that my sins, like your sins, deserve death. And God says, someone has to die. And he would have seen those animals being sacrificed and know they are dying in my place, but they are not the ultimate sacrifice. They are pointing to a Redeemer, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who will come later. He would have known that. That's where his faith would have been. He would have known, I can't do anything to achieve God's favor, to earn his love. But now we have the fuller explanation. We know that the promised Redeemer was Jesus who fulfilled literally what the sacrificed animals only depicted would happen. Now by faith we can know God. We receive him. We trust in Christ. And when that happens, we gain a new perspective about our lives and the lives of others. And so it's in God's presence where we gain perspective. This is called God's saving grace. God's saving grace. In verse 17, here's what he learned there also. Then I discerned their end. He meant the end of their lives, their final destiny. The destiny of the wicked means their final judgment. That they will perish apart from God in hell. In hell, he looked ahead. He said, it really doesn't matter how wonderful the life may look now. I saw an advertisement for a new television show, and the advertisement said, it's about some crime drama, and this deep narrator voice says, never has being bad looked so good. And Asaph had looked at it, and he said, that looks good, and then he looks at the end and says, it doesn't look so good now is I think, where is this heading? Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He gained an eternal perspective. He began to look at this life in light of what will come next, what will come in eternity. Only a fool lives without that knowledge, without that perspective. When I was about seventh grade, a bunch of boys, I guess there were about eight or ten of us, we went, what were our parents thinking? We spent the night at a farm, unchaperoned, all the boys. And it was, it was wild. We weren't old enough to drink to get to the local. I grew up in Madrai County, but this farm was in a county where there was a bootlegger that we all knew about. But we couldn't drive, so we couldn't get what we would have gotten had we had the opportunity. 
It's funny, I remember the names of all those bootleggers. I can't remember scripture, but I remember Bearden's and Shinnyfields in in, uh, northeast Alabama. Anyway, we're in this, we're in sleeping bags. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and conversation's just degrading by the moment. And one of the guys, we're in a room, the lights are out, and we're supposed to be going to sleep. And one of the guys said, you know, if I knew, these are seventh grade guys talking now, if I knew I was going to die in a few days, he began to lit me off all he would do to people he hated and to people he liked. And one of the guys in next to me in sleeping bag, without hesitation, said, then what would happen to you after you died? And the room got quiet. You know what my friend had? And he was a Christian. I don't think I was at that time, but he was. He had an eternal perspective. He had the perspective of Asaph. You can't evaluate this life without looking at the next life. And so that's what happened. I've heard people say that, you know, I would serve God. I mean, they're Christians, and I would live the Christian life whether there was a hell or not. I wouldn't. Asaph would not. He says, if it, basically, if there's no hell, what's the point? That was what motivated him. So in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, in God's presence, Asaph came to see everything from God's perspective rather than trying to evaluate everything just from the human perspective. He came to see that the lives of the wicked have a terrible end. And he gains a new awareness and he begins to treasure God again. And in verses 23 and following, we'll drop him down to 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's comparing all the things he listed that the wicked have. God gives them good health and and influence, and they seem to live easy lives, and they're not sick. And, And now he's saying, those things are nothing compared to the fact that I've got God. He is my treasure. I want to treasure him. James Boyce, before he died, said every Christian ought to memorize Psalm 73, those two verses, verses 25 and 26. As a high school senior, I don't know where I was exposed to this psalm. I wrote those two verses down, taped them on a piece of paper to the wall, right in front of my desk. I learned them in the New American Standard, but those were like the first two verses I memorized. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It means so much more when you look at where he'd come from through the psalm to arrive at that. So he gains a new awareness of God's value. Okay. I've got about five minutes, and I want to give you two key neglected doctrines from this psalm. We finished the the psalm. I want to now look back, as Asaph does, at what happened. First of all, we see in this psalm what our church fathers called God's restraining grace. God's restraining grace. Asaph says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Verse 23. You hold my right hand. He's looking back now and saying, I was falling. I was falling away. When I was going down, you were there, God. You pulled me back. You had my hand. You saved me. That's God's restraining grace. It means that Asaph knew that God was restraining me from going on a terrible fall. And this is his position. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Here's the question. Why did he not stumble? Why did he not slip? Because God held him back. 
God held him back by his hand. It was God who steadied him. When he got right to the edge of the cliff and he would have gone over and he felt like he was headed that way, God is the one who gripped his hand. It wasn't that Asaph was so smart. At first, Asaph doesn't view it that way. He simply saw it that he had been on the brink of falling. But now he's thinking, why did I not fall? And he understands God's restraining grace. Now, back to the backslider. How does this apply to us and even in backsliding? As I mentioned, a backslider is one who believes but falls but doesn't ultimately fall. They are not ultimately cast down. In other words, they always come back. The well doesn't run dry. The Bible nowhere teaches perfectionism, that the Christian does not sin. We are at odds with our Wesleyan brothers who do teach such. But read 1 Corinthians 5. If you're not familiar with that, that's a place in the Bible where the Apostle Paul is writing these Christians in the city of Corinth, which was a very pagan city. They could have lived anywhere in this world with ease, as far as if you think of wickedness. And there's a guy there in the church claiming to be a believer and bragging about the fact that he apparently is having immoral relationships with his uh, stepmother. And Paul, they, they, he won't repent, and it's affecting the whole church. And Paul says, put the guy out. In fact, he says, I've had to turn him over to Satan. I mean, he was out there. You t- he was, he'd gone off the edge. You know what happens in 2 Corinthians? That, that's in 1 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians, the guy's repented. He's come back. And Paul has to rebuke them, saying, let the guy back in the church. He's repented. Receive him back as a brother in Christ. So sometimes we can get out there. It's scary how far out there we can get. And yet, looking back, Asaph says, God, you had my hand. There's an old hymn, O love that will not let me go. God's love will not let us go. So God not only restrained him by his grace, the second term is God's restorative grace or his restoring grace. What caused him to go to the sanctuary of God? Was it just he woke up that morning or that afternoon or whatever particular time that they gathered and said, you know, I, 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 think, I'll, I think I'll just go on down there. I know he didn't have a watch like that, but maybe looked at a sundial or something and said, I think I'll, you know, we're gathering or I heard the, the horn that, that, that trumpeted, you know, that was the time that they gathered. And, and what caused him to do that? There he was, envious of the wicked, jaded in his faith. He's thinking, God is not fair. I've washed my hands in vain. You know, we would put it, the gospel is not true. Then suddenly he feels this urge to go to the sanctuary of God. You know what that is? That is God's restoring grace. Back to Martin Lloyd-Jones in the story of the man, you know, who committed adultery and was robbed, robbed his wife. He said, let me go back again to the Christian man who fell who fell and became guilty of adultery and deceived and robbed his own wife. Here is the rest of the story. If you had not heard anything else, you want to listen to this. He left his home and came to London and was living in adultery. His money came to an end. He was wretched and miserable, so much so that he determined to commit suicide. He was down to the very dregs. Finally, One Sunday night, as he made his way to the embankment, determined to throw himself into the Thames River and to end it all, it suddenly occurred to him to come into this church building. And he came and sat in the gallery while I was leading in prayer. I did not know he was there, but I said something about God's love even for the backslider. I said it suddenly, without premeditation, not knowing anything. And what I said, though just an odd phrase, was as a shaft of light from God to that poor soul. 
He came, he came back to God, and all is well with him. God's restoring grace. There he was, walking the streets, when suddenly he felt the desire to come into the sanctuary. Why? Because God sent him in. God put the thought into his mind, and he came in. God also put the thing I said in my mind, and I uttered it in my prayer. I was in no sense responsible. I was quite unaware of it. That is how God works. The history of the church is full of such examples. The history of this church and this congregation is full of such examples. That God brings us back just when we've reached our limit. Maybe we are way out there. Maybe we are hopeless. Maybe we are hardened. Maybe we are in despair. And that God intervenes. Some of you from time to time send me emails or sometimes a letter. Sometimes they're signed, sometimes they're not. And you will say, I was so hard against God or my heart was so hard and I wasn't planning to come to church, but I came and I want you to know how God used that sermon. Often I won't remember the sermon. I won't have... It's, it's, that's God. That is God. That is no person. That is, that is God's restraining and restoring grace, bringing that person back. That is him doing that. When you were backsliding and your faith was jaded or eroded, and one day you just happened to run into that Christian friend in Walmart, and you stood there and talked, and you left there, and things had changed in your perspective, was that an accident? That's God's restoring grace. When you wandered into church and this preacher or some other in the prayer or read a text of Scripture and you went, that's uncanny. Is he preaching to me? Does he know my story? Is that an accident? Is this just a funny coincidence? No, that is God holding your hand, not only pulling you back, but restoring you. I'm out of time. Those of us that are parents, I think, are there any perfect parents here today? Usually only perfect parents haven't had children yet, I guess. But What I mean is we, we realize as we continue in parenting and we have such limited knowledge, we have such limited wisdom, we have such limited control of circumstances and so forth. But any caring parent, even, even a halfway caring parent, if they have a child, a toddler, that wanders out toward the street, walking down the driveway, going... Any parent with, an ounce, with just an ounce of love in their heart will go and get that child's hand and bring them away. And they'll not only just stop them and then let their hand go, they'll not only restrain them, they will restore them and bring them back. Here's my point. If we are imperfect parents with limited knowledge, limited wisdom, limited love, our own sins, our own self-centeredness, and all that, and limited control over events. Do you really think God is going to sit and watch his children walk into the traffic and not lift a hand? Some of you, if you think that, you think that's how God views you? That you're going to slide like Asaph and God is just going to watch from a distance? No, I've got these closing words. Because he is going to restrain with his grace and he is going to restore. And that's, what, that's what's in Psalm 73. My final paragraph is to believers. Many times I end sermons and I try to appeal to the unbelievers here to believe. And I hope you do. I hope you repent and believe the gospel. See what Asaph saw in that sanctuary. 
But these words I wrote down, I just want to read them to you, my last paragraph to a Christian. Christian, nothing in your life is accidental. Nothing has happened or will happen to you by chance or coincidence. God is at work in you. So be comforted. Be encouraged. You are in the hands of God, and He controls everything. He has set His everlasting love upon you. No one can snatch you from His hand. He will not let you go. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed that you not only know all about us, but you can control all things around us. We would pray today for our hearts, for those among us that maybe they're backsliders in some fashion or form, and pray that today your hand would pull them back, restrain them, and restore them to joy, joy of your fellowship, joy with the fellowship of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Our history as Presbyterians is psalm singers, a cappella psalm singers. But we're going to sing, we, Michael and I, looked for a, a psalm that fit this psalm. And he found the text from Psalm 73. Let's stand and sing together this metrical setting of Psalm 73, verses 23 and following. <laughs> 